Hello everyone, my name is Carolyn Smith-Hilmer and you are listening to Screams on Film, a podcast where I talk about thrillers, suspense, and horror movies, books and TV shows, documentaries, docu-series, dark dramas, and all the dark comedies of the world. If it's dark and it's on film or TV, I have it to talk about. So I want to start by saying I've been wanting to do something like this for a long time. And I feel like this is the best way for me to get my thoughts and opinions out and my analyses of movies and TV shows out into the ether that we call the World Wide Web. So I've always loved horror movies. That's kind of why I wanted to start with something like this, right, for my first podcast. I've always loved them. I started with old slasher movies, you know, during my early teenage years with my parents in the living room on a Saturday afternoon. And those movie memories are super close to my heart. My whole life has sort of been consumed by this desire to watch any and all movies or read all the books that give me that ultimate feeling of shock and that, you know, feeling of dread that you get from watching these things and reading these things. I seek it out very regularly and my husband absolutely hates this because he did not grow up watching movies and really has no interest or little to no interest in watching them. But every now and again, I can get him to sit down and watch one with me, particularly if it's something um, older. So these classic movies, like I said, these thrillers, these uh, slashers, these creature features, he's fond of those. But uh, it is exhausting to have to carry all the weight of the movie knowledge in the relationship. But somebody has to do it. And um, it's a, you know, a badge that I wear very proudly. I kind of want to structure this podcast into weekly episodes. I definitely do not take myself too seriously. So... I don't want anyone to say that I am pretentious because if someone does say that, it will genuinely hurt my feelings. I don't have that, that, um, how do you, that knowledge, that technical knowledge, right? Um, or classic training or, or any training at all for that matter with regard to films and cinematography techniques and I don't have any of that. I'm just a consumer who likes to watch movies. I just like to learn things. I like to see why certain artists create what they create. So you're never going to hear me say that a movie is bad. If I don't like a movie, that doesn't make it bad, right? Um, I don't have, like I said, the training to determine whether or not a movie is bad, because I don't have the training to determine whether or not, you know, the sound mastering was good. Like, I don't know what any of that is on a technical level. I just know what is enjoyable for me as a viewer. You will hear me say that I hate movies. I can definitely promise you that. Um, Because I am 25 and I'm still going through my young adult angsty bitter phase, but But you'll never hear me say that a movie is bad, but I will definitely let you know if I hate it. Uh, Also, just for like how the podcast is going to be kind of structured, what I'd like to do is every week sit down and talk to you about a movie. I'll go plot line by plot line with you. I'll walk you through the whole film. Maybe you need a refresher for what we're about to talk about. Maybe you've never seen this movie. Maybe this is your favorite movie. 
Maybe you have no interest in watching this movie because you don't like scary movies and you still like to learn about them because you still think they're interesting because you still appreciate art and you are probably my favorite kind of people. Um, but for those of us out there that love horror and love everything within that genre, I want to briefly go over what the movie is about, right? And then I'd like to talk to you about the movie, an analysis of the movie, if you will. I kind of want to go into what was happening in the world at that time, maybe what was happening in the U.S. during that time, what was happening with the people at that time. Was there, you know, an uprising in working women? Was there a war going on? Was there a strike going on? You know, kind of what was going on that made this movie what it was and made it so important? That's what I'd like to do. So if you want to talk about a movie with like someone who feels like a close friend to you, uh, I'm that person. Today's podcast, I want to talk about one of my top 10 movies. And like I said, this, this is not a spoiler-free situation, so... If you uh, do not like spoilers, I suggest you turn this off and go watch it now because we are going to be talking about The Last House on the Left. I'm talking about the 1972 Wes Craven version. So Last House on the Left is a movie about two teenage girls heading to a rock concert for one of their birthdays, trying to score some marijuana in the city where they are kidnapped and brutalized by a gang of psychopathic convicts. That's the official description of the movie. This is one of those movies that you watch and immediately you take a shower. It's the epitome of the rape-revenge subgenre of horror. Um, the 1970s was a unique time for the genre, and I'll go into... A little bit about that later. Actually, I'll go into a lot about that later. Uh, but what I think is really funny about this movie is just a fun fact. But Roger Ebert gave this film a super favorable review. I think he gave it like three and a half stars. And he hated horror movies. He never gave them stellar reviews. You can go to his website and read all of his reviews. Um, he, he very much liked this movie and I, I think that speaks to how much this film was really that influential, right? Because you have one of the most decorated film critics of all time telling you that this was a great movie and they never really liked any of them. So this is a very grainy movie, heads up if you're gonna try to watch it for the first time or maybe give it a rewatch for the first time in a long time. You will be less than pleased with the quality um, on your 4K TV. I recently watched this with my husband uh, not long ago. Of course, I gave it a rewatch for, for this um, episode. But whenever we watched it, he looked at me and he was like, I don't think that we're watching this in 4K. And I was like, no, of course we're not, of course we're not watching it in 4K. Like this, no, this movie was not meant to be watched in 4K. It was meant to be watched like this. So this movie is still very grainy, very low budget feeling to watch. The budget of the movie was actually less than $100,000. So if you decide to watch this for the first time or give it a rewatch for the first time in a long time, you are definitely not going to be pleased with the quality of it on your 4K TV. But, uh, I think that's kind of the charm to it, actually, because 
you get to experience it in the way that those in the original viewing parties in 1972 would have experienced it. So I still think it feels very genuine. I still think the movie is enjoyable to watch. Highly encourage it. So now I want to get into the actual movie and how the movie itself plays out. The movie starts out with us inside of one of the main characters' homes. So our main character, or one of them, um, but she's really the focus of the movie, it is Mary Collingwood. So played by Sarah Peabody. And it's her 17th birthday. So Mary's parents are pissed, right? Because Mary and her friend Phyllis, played by Lucy Grantham, are going to a concert in the city. The girls hang out together, you know, in the woods, drinking alcohol and gossiping about cute teenage girly stuff. Um, I have no idea how they got this alcohol, but I think it kind of shows what the teenagers were doing, right? Like we're seeing them, they're going to a concert, they're gonna get drunk before, Mary's parents aren't super happy because Mary wants to go to this concert and we already see that she's not making a good decision, right? So uh, this at the time in the 1970s, this act of, of women and young teenagers like drinking, doing drugs, having sex without their parents around was a huge shock. So while now we look at this and we don't really see that to be anything truly meaningful, at the time, the audience was like, holy shit, I can't believe Mary and Phyllis would do this. I can't believe that they would drink alcohol, right? So then they head off to the city and they're going to go to their concert. The uh, audience is then introduced to a group of convicts. So our basket of uh, convicts in this, uh, we have four. We have Krug, who's played by David A. Hess, Junior, played by Mark Scheffler, Fred the Weasel, played by Fred Lincoln, and Sadie, played by Jermaine Rain. They're hanging out in this disgusting apartment, acting like everything's fine and dandy, uh, but we know, the audience knows, right, that these four people have just escaped from prison because whenever Mary and Phyllis get into the car to go to the concert, like when they go to drive to the city, they turn on the radio and the radio is talking about how a group of convicts has recently escaped. And Krug is our leader. Junior is his son. So Junior is deeply troubled. He is an addict um, and Krug is not a nice man um, and he's certainly not a nice father. So we'll see how that kind of plays out later. Our girly pals, Mary and Phyllis, decide that they want to smoke some good weed with a bad bitch and encounter Junior to help them make a purchase. So Junior takes the girls back to this disgusting apartment that he and his criminal family are hanging out in, and it is completely game over for the teens at this point, because we already know. As soon as the girls are uncomfortable and resist the advances of the group, Phyllis is raped by Krug and Weasel while Mary watches. And all this time, Mary's cutie button parents are at home planning her fucking birthday party. Krug and his gang decide that they're going to take Phyllis and Mary to the woods in the trunk of a car. And we learn that the girls are super close to Mary's parents' house. So now you feel like you're going to totally suffocate because they're so close to the safety of Mary's parents that you just want to scream for her to run and then put the blanket over your eyes until you hear Mary's mom and dad yell her name. But unfortunately, we're not going to get that luxury here. 
I actually did scream though because we see the gang's car break down feet, literally feet from Mary's house. At the same time, Mary's parents are on the phone with the police explaining to them that Mary hasn't been home. And the cops are like, oh no, crazy mom and dad, she's a teenager, let her live, she'll be home, you have nothing to worry about. And of course, we know that's not what's happening, but Mary's parents are like, nah, okay, like we believe you, but still we'd feel better if you came and, and looked at something because we're just not really feeling right. And the cops in this movie are absolute dipshits. They are no help at all, okay? They don't even, they really don't even, what it feels like to me, make a best effort to try to save this, right? Like, you'll see that they go to Mary's parents' house and they don't even notice that there's a random car broken down in front of Mary's parents' driveway. So later on in the movie, they literally go back to Mary's parents' house just to take a look at the car. Very not observant. We know that Mary's parents are not going to come to Mary and Phyllis's rescue. We see that they've been tied up and they're being dragged from the trunk of the car after Krug and his pals are too mechanically stupid to figure out how to fix their car. So they try, they can't figure it out, and then they're like, uh, it really sucks as we were going to go to the next state, but I guess we're going to have to do whatever we're going to do to these girls here. I would just like to say that my pseudo-social best friends over at Top Gear, uh, the good Top Gear obviously, would never be caught dead in this position, but I digress. So Phyllis thinks she's too cool for school, and she decides to bite Krug's hand. So Krug is our leader, like I said. And she gets her shit rocked. He is not pleased with the fact that she tried to bite him and she very much gets beat up. It's very hard to watch. So then Mary finally wakes up and realizes that her house is super, super close by. They're in the woods. She knows where they are because her house is close. So once they're in the woods, Mary and Phyllis get untied and a series of tragic incidents unfold. And I don't know that it's worth going into the nitty gritty details because I don't know that this always adds much to the story, but what I will say is that in the context of this movie, I actually think that what does unfold is important because the time that this movie was filmed in was a time in which people were witnessing things randomly and, and, and completely graphic on daytime TV. So here's what happens. So Phyllis is forced to pee her pants and then she gets naked. And then she strips Mary naked. The girls are forced to have sex with each other and Sadie sexually assaults Mary also. So Phyllis runs off and Sadie and Weasel chase her while Mary sits with Junior. And Junior has been assigned to watch her, but we all know that Junior is not gonna be our most reliable because we can already see that he's kind of going through withdrawal. He allows Mary to persuade him in a way, uh, but nevertheless, he's an addict, right? So he's thinking, Mary is kind of telling him like, hey, like my dad can help you, you know, I, I wanna help you. And Junior is like, okay, yeah, like I want the help, like I really do want it. And you know, Mary's saying, hey, we don't need to have Krug in your life. He's not, 
He's not helping you. My dad can help you. My dad's a doctor. So all this is going on, and Weasel eventually stabs Phyllis and corners her. I think they're in the cemetery after she tries to crawl away. Uh, and then she gets disemboweled and repeatedly stabbed. This part is incredibly hard to watch. I have no idea how they were able to do these special effects, but it is super troubling. So if you have a weak stomach, maybe you want to skip that part. Eventually, Mary gets Junior to agree to let her go. But as soon as she goes to leave, she is met by Krug, who gives her Phyllis's severed hand. Mary gave Junior her necklace of a peace sign whenever she was trying to earn his trust, by the way. So keep that in mind. So after Krug gives Mary Phyllis's hand, like she wants that, obviously, um, Krug proceeds to carve his name into Mary's chest before raping her. So then after he rapes her, Mary is sick and she vomits and walks all over, you know, in a daze everywhere. She's not understanding what's going on to her. Her body's in shock. She ends up walking to the lake. So Krug shoots Mary and her body is just floating in the lake. So now the gang seems like they're surprised by what they were able to pull off and they take a bath in the lake. This part is so weird to me because you're looking at these people who just, you know, just pulled off whatever this was and they look at each other like they never meant to do it. It's so bizarre. It's such a bizarre feeling to watch this. So, okay, they take a bath, they change clothes, and now we're done with all this buildup, and now we're going to get to the good part. Here comes Lady Revenge. So the group changes into their new clothes, and they walk over to the Collingwood house. This is Mary's parents' house, uh, because their car broke down in front of the house, So, and it was the closest house nearby. So they walk over there and pretend to be salesmen, and Mary's parents agree to let them stay the night. So like I mentioned earlier, Junior is an addict, and he's already showing signs that he's going through withdrawal. So now, after they eat dinner, Junior is profusely throwing up in the bathroom. He's very sick. So when they were in the woods, like I said, Mary gave Junior her peace sign necklace as a sign of trust. So Estelle, which is Mary's mom, sees the necklace on Junior's neck whenever he is walking back and forth to the bathroom. And she stays up. This is in the middle of the night. She stays at the door and listens to their guests who are now unwelcome. She also finds bloody clothes in their suitcase and her husband, Dr. Collingwood, go out to the woods where they inevitably find Mary's body in the lake. Mary's body is barely breathing at this point and it's horrific because they're so close. Their house is so close to the scene of this crime. They would have done anything like any normal parent would to prevent this from happening to their daughter and they couldn't and it happened right in their backyard. I mean, it's absolutely tragic. So Estelle and Dr. Collingwood decide that this is time, it's go time, right? So Estelle, one by one, Estelle and Dr. Collingwood are going to get rid of these guests in some 
some and not some creative ways. But uh, I think the first one's pretty creative. So Estelle has tricked Weasel into this like sexy game outside. Uh, and you know, they're kind of flirting with each other and it's going on. Well, inevitably she bites off his penis. It's absolutely amazing, right? She ties him up and she bites off his penis. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous Estelle, best mom in fictitious history. So Dr. Collingwood is in the house this time and he has his shotgun and he sneaks into the bedroom where the guests are staying, right? So Krug turns out the lights and Dr. Collingwood shoots and Krug's arm gets like grazed with a bullet so he doesn't actually get shot shot. Then shit really hits the fan because Junior decides that he wants to kill his dad. So now we have Junior and Krug and Dr. Collingwood all in the living room. Junior gets mentally manipulated by his dad Krug and ends up committing suicide instead of killing Krug. So this was really sad because Junior was really the one who, I mean, Mary was able to get him to trust her, right? Like a little bit anyway. So Junior was really our last hope for one of these people to go on and live a successful life, but it's just not gonna happen. And it's, it's so sad the way this plays out. So now Dr. Collingwood has decided that he wants a chainsaw. So he goes and he gets one from the basement and attacks Krug with it. So now the cops finally fucking decide to show up and they beg Dr. Collingwood to not attack Krug with the chainsaw. But Dr. Collingwood really doesn't give a shit because this man is responsible for the death of his child. He just goes to town. Um, Sadie then tries to run. So you have Krug slaughtered in the living room with a chainsaw. You have Junior also in the living room committed suicide and you have Weasel outside by the pool with uh, no penis. So now you only have one person left. So now we have Sadie. She's our only woman left from this group and she tries to run, but Estelle is such a bad bitch. And after Sadie's uncoordinated ass drops her weapon and trips and falls, Sadie ends up in the pool after her and Estelle go back and forth for a little while. And Estelle grabs Sadie's switchblade and slits her throat right on open. Hell yeah, brother. Well, all four of them are gone. Now we're feeling, we're feeling good. So the movie ends with the parents looking around their house, quite literally in bloody shambles. The first time I had really sat down to watch this movie from start to finish was in 2021 with my now husband. And he was a fan but he said it made his skin crawl. And I believe that that was the point of the movie. I mean, the movie is scary because the antagonists are, are people that really exist in this world in a broader sense, right? I mean, it's not based on any one specific group of people, but it's, it, it, these types of things do happen. So that's what made it scary for me. And I'm assuming that's what made it scary for him. But this kind of speaks to the main themes that we see becoming more and more prevalent in the 1970s with regard to the horror genre. Real life horrors became the focus of the genre rather than like the supernatural or the creature features 
that you see more and more of in like the previous decades. So we get to learn more about the trauma of the survivors in the movies, which is much more interesting of a film device to me than, I don't know, a vampire killing everybody. Um, and unfortunately, in Last House on the Left, no, we don't get to see Mary and Phyllis survive. That sucks. Uh, but we do get to see her parents, Mary's parents. And I think watching them learn what happened and act so quickly without, without any second thoughts, right? I think that is crazy important. And that's really not something that we had seen happen at all, really, before this. Uh, I mean, like I said, it is a rape-revenge movie. It is its own subgenre of film. When we look at the 1970s, I mean, the theme of trauma was very heavy in the U.S. during this time. During the 1960s, American adolescents had the pleasure of witnessing, uh, not really the pleasure, but I mean, they, they, they were witness to the bloodshed during the Vietnam War on daytime TV. And war is certainly an example of the real life horror that you can inflict from human to human. I mean, it's, it's almost, there's no more primitive example of something like this. And we also see there's like the sexual revolution and the hippie revolution, if you want to call it that, and, and just how things are becoming a little bit more open and not everybody's so stuffy every second of every day. Uh, but after Vietnam, so after the 1960s, we see public trust in the government at an all-time low. We see Watergate happen, which leads to more public distrust of, of government and all of our institutions. We see the depletion of religion and the breakdown of what the conventional leave it to beaver family looks like. We see divorce rates rise and more and more women taking on roles outside of the home. Over 50% of all mothers with young children were working outside the home during this time. So more and more teenagers were shown in movies like unsupervised because whereas, you know, their parent or both parents were home all the time, now you have over 50% of mothers out of the household working and you've already had the men out of the household in the labor force. So now you have teenagers unsupervised. What could be more scary than leaving teenagers unsupervised? So this is something that really didn't, well, it wasn't shown in, in film until this time. And you see them, you know, doing drugs and having sex with no parent seemingly in sight. Halloween is a great example of this. In Halloween, you have no parents present. I mean, just the one girl's dad who's a cop, right? But everywhere else, you have teenagers babysitting little kids. There's no adult figure around. And even these teenagers are having boys over and drinking and on the phone and they're cooking in the kitchen without an adult home. And so it's, it's very much like the unconventional family that we're seeing now. We see religion being lost. And I think the best example of this is in The Omen. Uh, you have Damien, who is the child embodiment of the Antichrist. And, you know, the, the depletion in society of the conventional family unit, you see that the religious 
facet of people's lives also kind of starts to deplete with that. I, I don't, I would like to know more about why that is, but you can see that, you know, now we're becoming scared of children during this time. We're, we're becoming scared of a little boy named Damien, right? Like you would never see a movie about the Antichrist being in the body of a little boy um, before this time. And I just think that this was just such an interesting time. But overall, what we're really seeing is the artistic exploration, right, of these horrors that people were experiencing during this time in American history. And we could go on and on. And this is certainly more than I would like to dive into today. But The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a wonderful film in which the issues that the young adults of the 70s grew up with during the 60s and was an attempt to shine light and pay tribute to those feelings of hopelessness and distrust. And I think the number one takeaway of this is that metaphors are always going to be the best way for us to express our own feelings when we can't seem to find the right words. We can't always put into words what it is about our feelings uh, and and why we're feeling the way we're feeling and how that feeling came about and what that feeling feels like to feel if it's on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis. All those things are hard to say, but you can sometimes watch a movie or listen to a song or read a book and go, I've thought about that before. Hmm, I felt that way before. It's easier to draw comparisons sometimes to outside works than it is to do that introspection of figuring it out and putting it into words yourself. And I think that's why this this movie in particular and, um, and a lot of the movies during the 1970s, it even shows light on how people were living their life during that time, like I said, right? I mean you see that there's the nuclear family that's kind of not being shown in the same light, right? You have Mary in in Last House on the Left who her parents are like, yeah, I guess you can go to a concert in the city, like whatever. It's your birthday. We're planning a birthday party for you, but whatever. That's kind of a a liberal way of, of parenting of like, we trust you. You're 17. Go out and do this thing. Go have fun. We trust you. But, you know, previously, I would imagine that wasn't always the case. Um, It could have very much been, yeah, uh, no, the answer is no, and you're not going. And the answer as to why you can't go is because I said so, which we all know is not an answer. Uh, But I can see where the times kind of shifted. And then you see Phyllis in this movie, whose parents are not even mentioned. We have no idea about Phyllis's parents. It's very much, you know, it's, it's stark. It's a stark contrast. That, that must have been really telling during the times, I can imagine. So I think we have a lot to learn with regard to why movies are made and what it is that makes them important. So within, you know, The Last House on the Left, we know that it's important because it was an exploitation film. It was scary. It was scary as shit. It was scary as a 24-year-old watching it in my own apartment. Um, I can't imagine what it would have been like to watch it when it came out. So these themes are important, and that really sets the tone for what Last House on the Left came to be. 
I, next week, will be talking about a different film. I'm not going to do another exploitation film, but I felt like this was a really important place in film history to start. So thank you so, so much if you made it this far. Like I said, this is my first episode. I've never podcasted before. I have no experience doing this. I have no experience editing. Uh, If you made it this far, thank you so much. And I hope, hope, hope that you will join me again next week when I talk about a new film. Thanks, guys.